Good morning, everyone. If you would grab a Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. We will be spending most, if not all, of our time in Hebrews 11. I think we might get a little bit into Hebrews 12, so don't hold me to that. But we'll be in this part of the Bible. So it do, do you well to be open to that place. Hebrews chapter 11. So good to see you this morning. We have a great crowd this morning. We have a number of visitors. We're so glad that you have chosen to be with us this morning. Uh, if you are new to the area or you are interested in looking for a church family to be a part of, we'd love to talk to you more about that. We'd love to get to know you. But we are appreciative that you're here this morning. For those who are traveling, those who are visiting, we're thankful that you have taken the time and made the effort to be here with us and to worship God with us. It's been a good morning. Appreciate all those who, are, uh, who have already participated in the worship service. Great to hear from Cliff and see Cliff. Uh, just, just a neat morning, and I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity to worship this morning. Hebrews 11 and verse 5 is where I want to begin. Hebrews 11 and 5. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This verse takes me back to very young days sitting in little Bible classes where I would have a copy of the old King James Bible. And uh, I remember flipping through, because this is what I did as a kid, whether it's during the sermon or during the Bible class. There, there was not really any other entertainment except the Bible. And so you'd flip through Genesis, and you get to Genesis 5. And in Genesis 5, it's just a chapter of genealogies. And so you're looking for, well, what's, what's interesting in Genesis 5? And if you're a little kid, there are two things that are interesting. One is... Methuselah, who lived 969 years. So you always look for Methuselah. Ah, there he is. He's the oldest. And might run through that again just to make sure you're right, because you've got to be able to tell all your friends. And then the other is that, that there's this story of Enoch. And as you read Genesis 5, it'll say, so-and-so fathered so-and-so. He lived so many years, and then he died. So many years, and then he died. And then there's Enoch, and it just says, and he was not, for God took him. And as a little kid, you say, what? God took him. He's just not there. That little story is what the Hebrew writer says is an instructive story for you and me. That's verse 5, where it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. See, Genesis says that Enoch walked with God, but in the Greek translation, it says he pleased God. And that's what he says. You know, that's impressive. Some mere man pleased God, made God happy. So happy that God said, you're going to be with me. You're not going to die like all those before you and after you. Instead, you're going to be with me. But then the Hebrew writer speaks more broadly about people. In verse 6, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. What he is saying is it, it is possible for you and me to be like Enoch and that we can please God, but we cannot do it without doing it the way you please God, which has to do with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And he's trying to tell us about the flavor of faith. What does faith feel like and look like? And so he says two things in verse 6. Look at it with me again. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the first is that he exists. And I don't know that that's really headline news. If we're going to come to God and believe in God, we've got to believe that he is. But that second part is a big deal, that God rewards those 
who seek him. And that's what I want us to think about for a few minutes. The idea that God is a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. The Hebrew writer is trying to tell us something about God, what God is like and what God wants from us. And that is something to which we should pay careful attention. Especially, I want to take this as an opportunity for each one of us to challenge ourselves, not just to fill a pew, not just to have a passing intellectual interest in religion or in Christianity, not to just make occasional attempts at ethical living, but to say, I want to be someone who seeks God diligently. So I want us to think about what that looks like for a few minutes this morning. And what we're going to do is look at how the Hebrew writer explains diligent seeking to see who we should be and the challenge that's laid out before us. So to start with, diligent seekers hunger for God. He says there in verse 6 that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, when Enoch pleased God, he reached the absolute pinnacle of human existence. He became as great as a man can ever be because he pleased God. But he pleased God because he sought God. When you seek God, what it means is that you hunger to know him, to belong to him, to obey him, to please him, to think about him. To seek God means that we are unsatisfied with the world as we see it and know it and understand it. There is a drive inside us for something more. So that's going to mean that we long for stability because we live in a world of transition. And we long for love because we live in a world of rejection. And we long for comfort because we live in a world of pain. And we long for wholeness because we live in a world that's broken. And the way we see the path to those things is only in God. The only one that can fix all that is wrong with ourselves and with the world in which we live. The only one who can do that is God. So we hunger for God and we seek him and we want to learn about him. And we want to become more like him Because that is our hunger. Our lives become animated with the possibility that we could please a God who could fix what's wrong. That's the kind of hunger that motivated Abraham. Look a little further in Hebrews 11 in verse 9. It says, by faith, this is Abraham, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So he he highlights a couple of scenes in Abraham's life, particularly when God says, go out from your country to a land that I'll show you. And Abraham just picks up and leaves. Because Abraham trusts, if God tells me to do this, I want to do what God says. I want to follow where God goes. What was he looking for? He says in verse 10, 
Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I want to go to the city where God is, the city God built and the city God lives in. And Abraham somehow, I'm mystified at this, somehow he knows that there is a city like this. And wherever God is leading him, that's where he wants to go. And it says in verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. What an awesome statement. For he has prepared for them a city. So, of course, God is not ashamed to own a people who are so passionate for him that they will go anywhere he says and do anything he says. Those are the people that are going to live with him. Those are the people who are his people. Sometimes we talk about people who are deeply interested in finding truth and pursuing spiritual things. We talk about them as seekers. And that's an apt description. But what I want you to see is that seekers are not just those who seek truth, but they also are open to the possibility that the source of all truth is God and that the answer to all the questions is God. And so they are going to hunger then, not just for truth, but truth because truth points to the truth giver, because truth takes them to God. This is Acts 17 and verse 26. This is Paul's words on the Areopagus. It says, and he, that's God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far, actually far from each one of us. That's not ye, thee. That's some bad typing there by me. Do you see what Paul is saying? He says God has fashioned the world in the way he has and he has placed people in the nations that they live in and he has set their boundaries and, and developed their civilizations with one goal in mind, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. There's a lot more too. He has left traces and witnesses throughout his creation and in people and in scripture and in our own longings internally, and all of them point us towards something that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. And that seeking, that hunger, it's going to require some thought, and we're going to have to do some work, and we're going to have to ask some questions, and we're going to have to listen to others, and we're going to have to listen to God's revelation, and sometimes we're going to have to change things about our lives that are really hard to change. But the key to it all is that hunger that desire. So when you see the word seek used in the New Testament as it is in our text in Hebrews 11, very often that desire is what is described. Seeking is what makes Zacchaeus, who is seeking to see Jesus, climb up in a tree. He wants it and he won't be denied. It's also the word used in this text. This is Matthew 13, 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And that word in search is seeking, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there is this, this hunger, this desire. I'm looking for something. I'm passionate about it. And I'm gonna go to whatever extent I need to to find what I'm seeking. So some of the translations have in our text in Hebrews 11, the word diligently seeking or earnestly seeking or sincerely seeking. It is an incredibly intense word that I think is best described as something like hunger. So what I am saying 
is that diligent seekers are not just passionate about morality. They're not just passionate about religion. They're not passionate so that they can have power over other people and control them. They are passionate because they hunger for God. And so they say with David, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. Seeking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up, I be a fool. This is the hunger. Second, diligent seekers see with spiritual eyes. I want you to notice how often he talks about it in terms of sight in Hebrews 11. Look back in verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the idea of the creation, however you understand it, whatever your beliefs about the origins of the universe, you have to admit that there are things that are seen that had to be created in a way that we don't understand and cannot see. So whatever theory of origins you accept, you accept it by faith. But... He is saying, we understand God's hand in things because we see an unseen thing behind it all. Down in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So this events yet unseen is describing the flood. Noah was told about the flood during a time in which it had never rained. And so to say no one had seen water falling from the sky is bad enough, but to say there will be so much water that you need a boat to survive. And yet Noah believed because he saw things that had never been seen. He had spiritual eyes. In verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, And greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He's referring here to the promises Abraham has given. You know, your your descendants will be like the sands of the seashore. You're going to be in this land. And then he gets to the land and God says, oh yeah, um, that's for your descendants. He sees it, but he doesn't see it. He sees it, but he doesn't see it. He has to see with spiritual eyes. And so he greets it, the text says. Because he believes God will do it, even though he doesn't see it. And in fact, he dies without seeing it. And verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What an amazing story this is, where Joseph, as all his family is now gathered around him, you know, it's the last words of Joseph. What's he going to say? He says, you know, in a little while, a few hundred years, God's going to come visit you. And when he does... Can you take my bones out with you? Which don't you know his kids were saying, your bones, dad. But uh, Joseph looks by faith and he sees things with spiritual eyes. Verse 26, this is Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see him who is invisible? You look with spiritual eyes. He looked to the reward. So here's my point. To be a diligent seeker, we're going to have to look at the world a different way. Part of that is about our priorities. 
where we can say, you know, as long as I get what I'm seeking, as long as I'm hungering for God, then it doesn't really matter the rest of what happens. That is to say, what goes on in the world, how great all my relationships are, my list of accomplishments in my life. All of these things pale in comparison to what I am hungry for in seeking God. It's also, though, going to affect the way we judge and evaluate the things that go on around us. We're going to ask questions like, what does this mean for the gospel and the cause of Jesus, rather than what does this mean for politics? We're going to be interested in soul concerns and sin concerns and influence. Those are the things that matter to seekers. We're going to make decisions, long-term, big life decisions and small everyday decisions with spiritual priorities in mind. How will this affect my soul or my kid's soul? How will this affect my ability to influence someone? What will people say or think about this that would affect spiritual consequences down the line? Spiritual eyes. We want to do good and we want to help others. But if we hunger for God, his approval is the driving force. And so we look to the reward. We endure as seeing him who is invisible. We accept his promises even when we don't see them fulfilled in our own lifetimes. We see with spiritual eyes. Diligent seekers, excuse me, diligent seekers overcome opposition. Overcome opposition. You know, many of the people in Hebrews 11, as he describes this idea of diligently seeking God, have people who oppose their efforts to do right. Look at verse 4, Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but for whatever reason, Cain and Abel are not on the same page about sacrifice. And that becomes a source of great bitterness and resentment between the two, and Cain ends up killing Abel, at least in part contributed to by the fact that Abel is sacrificing in the right way. But what I want to focus on is the fact that Abel doesn't allow Cain and whatever's going on with Cain to get in the way of him and God. I'm going to do the right thing. And Cain, if you want to do the wrong thing, that's your business. I I can't really help that. But I am going to overcome your opposition. Look down in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So by building the ark, Noah condemned the world. Now we know uh, Noah is described in 2 Peter as a preacher of righteousness. And there's probably some sense in which he condemned by speaking. But I believe what's going on here is he is saying, by continuing to follow God in a world of people dismissive of God, Noah overcame opposition and he condemned them through his actions. He sought God anyway, even if he was the only one, even if there are eight people in the whole world who are seeking God. Noah says, I'm going to be one of them. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look down at verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Opposition, yes, but faith overcomes it. They protect their baby boy because they trust God will be faithful to help them. Verse 26, Moses considered the reproach of Christ 
greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses resists Pharaoh. Moses leads the people out. Moses continues to go against his upbringing as an Egyptian. Down in verse 36, Hebrews 11 and verse 36 Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What we are reading about in this little section is people who suffered for their faith. They were persecuted. They were killed. They lived miserable lives. And yet they lived them by faith. And that didn't stop them from seeking God. You know, we don't have their names. It just says in verse 36, others. Because even if the names were in print here, we wouldn't know who they are. They are minor people in the world's eyes. The Hebrew writer says the world's not worthy of them. Now, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Seeking him is going to mean standing out in a world that is not seeking him. You will be different. Sometimes that's going to make people angry. Sometimes they're going to try to stop and intimidate you. But the flavor of faith, the idea of being a diligent seeker, is that we are going to overcome opposition It does not expect everyone else to have the priorities or views that we do. Now, the concern, of course, is that when people oppose us, we're going to get discouraged. Maybe we just can't handle the opposition. I think sometimes we feel this, especially in our younger people. We begin to think, well, maybe maybe everybody else is right and I'm wrong. I mean, if so many people believe this, Maybe they're right. Maybe I've just been misled. Maybe my parents lied to me. Maybe they just don't know any better. And so we begin to question, because there's opposition, the things that we used to know were true. Diligent seekers stand out, not because they are better than other people, but because they are seeking God when other people are not. And that's what it looks like when you have Abel and you have Noah And you have Moses, people who we look at and say, wow, what faith. Why do we say it? It's because they didn't give up just because people opposed them. And this passage is a call for you and me to be like them. Diligent seekers, keep going. Keep going. This is really the focus of the section. In fact, it's kind of the focus of Hebrews. Look back in chapter 10 with me. Oh, I told you we'd be in chapter 11, maybe a little chapter 12. I didn't say anything about chapter 10. Sorry about that. But we need to get the very last verse in chapter 10. Hebrews 10 and verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's just quoted this passage that talks about shrinking back. He says, That's not us. We're not the people who quit. So keep going. Now, it's not entirely clear the nature of the danger that the Hebrew Christians are facing. It's probably some kind of persecution. But it is clear that they're at least toying with the possibility of leaving Jesus behind. And the writer says, please listen. He says, you come from a long line of people who don't quit serving God. Your spiritual heritage goes a long way back. 
to people who just never quit. Remember what we read? Look in 11 and 13. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. He said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Some of the people who are in your spiritual heritage, they died before they ever saw God finish what he started. And yet they died in faith that someday this is going to come to completion and God's going to fulfill his word. I know God is faithful. He will be faithful even if I don't live to see it. Look down at verse 32. Hebrews 11 and verse 32. And I'd like for you, we're going to read an extended section here. I'd like for you to read along with me. Verse 32, he says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says, look at the awesome stuff these people did. And he goes through the list, and it's sort of like the preacher as the sermon's starting to wind down. He says, okay, I've got a lot more to say, but I can't say it all. But let me just tell you the names, and let me just tell you some of the things they did. But can you imagine how hard it would be to suffer in all these different ways and yet continue to believe, to keep going? And he says, these people are like a great cloud of witnesses around you. And the picture, as I probably told you before, is the picture of an Olympic arena where all these people are sitting in the stands and there are witnesses. They're there not just to see but also to testify, to tell us about what they did and their interactions with God and in doing so to encourage us as they watch us run the race. And you and I, we can hear their testimony And the most significant thing about their testimony is that not one of them regrets their service and their faith to God. Not one of them says, you know what, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have done any of that stuff. They say, if you keep going, it will be worth it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then the most important witness of all, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What did he do? Did he quit when things were difficult, when he was challenged, when people were ugly to him? He shows us what it is to run with endurance and then to receive the prize and to sit down at the right hand of God. So the flavor of faith 
is that it contains endurance. It is tough and stable and long-lasting. It doesn't quit because it gets disappointed or because it's misunderstood or because it sees something in someone else that it doesn't like, like hypocrisy. Instead, it keeps going. It keeps going when times are good and when times are bad. It keeps going when it understands and when it doesn't. It just keeps going. So we keep seeking when we are diligent seekers because we know that seeking God is not easy, but it is our hunger and our passion and our life's purpose, and we will not stop. That's what it means to diligently seek God. Now, would you go with me back to Hebrews 11 and verse 6? Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seeks them. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. What that means is God will ensure that if you are seeking him, you will get what you seek. In fact, there are some passages that to me at least imply that whatever you're seeking, God's going to make sure you get it. Whatever you're really passionately pursuing. This is Romans 2 and verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So we seek for glory and honor and immortality. What do we receive? The things we're seeking. If we're seeking the self, and we don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what do we receive? Well, we, we get ourselves. And we get the wrath and fury that comes as a just punishment for what we've done. We get what we seek. The danger is that we're seeking things that are not truly what we want or need. Or this is Jesus in Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open. Seek and you will find God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So I want you to think about how God responds to these ancient believers. Think about how God treats Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses. How does God respond when they seek him? God rewards those who seek him. If you look through the text in Hebrews 11 and you ask the question, well, what's the reward? What, what is it God gives? You get answers like a homeland or a city. But I wonder if in all of those things that you would find in Hebrews 11, I wonder if the real reward is not God himself. That you get what you've been hungry for, what you've been diligently seeking. If what we want most is to live in the presence of God, and receive his comfort and experience the fullness of his goodness, then that is our reward. It is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The interesting part is that the New Testament also teaches that God is seeking you. This is John 4 and verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I am fascinated by that idea. That God is going out and turning over all the rocks. Where are my people? Where are my true worshipers? I'm looking for them. And so there are parables Jesus tells. 
where he pictures God as a woman who has lost a coin and she's sweeping the house and I just picture her pulling out the cushions and looking everywhere. Where are my coins? Or as a shepherd who has lost one sheep and he leaves the 99, yeah, you guys will be fine. I got to go find the one. Where is my sheep? God is seeking us too. So if God wants to find us and we want to find God, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This should prompt some introspection from us. If my life were to be described as me seeking something, what would it be? What is the hunger and passion of my life? Do I see the spiritual dimensions to what is going on around me? Do other people dissuade me from my quest? Or have I gotten tired? Can I tell you why I would talk about this? Britt and I were talking this week about the fact that for the first several hundred years after Jesus lived and died and rose again and was ascended to heaven, those first couple hundred years, the church was faced with persecution, difficulty. They were certainly not a favored class. Sometimes they were blamed for things that were not their fault. They met in the catacombs. It was not easy to be a Christian. And all of that changed when Constantine, quote-unquote, Christianized the empire. And suddenly, it was cool to be a Christian. Everybody was a Christian. In fact, you stuck out if you weren't a Christian. And all of a sudden, the cost, the difficulty of being a disciple of Jesus was nothing. And so came what is often called nominal Christianity. And that, I believe, is is a common problem even in our time. It's easy for us to be Christians. And so we, we take it as easy. We don't think there's much of a search or seeking. And the danger comes. When there are real obstacles and real challenges to our faith, real persecution, real situations we don't know how to handle, and suddenly we discover that our faith was non-existent. We were filling a pew. God rewards those who diligently seek him. I preach a lesson like this because with some regularity, I deal with young people. Young people who are often raised going to church Sunday after Sunday. They know the books of the Bible. They know a lot of what the Bible teaches. They know what they're expected to do. And yet there is very little heart behind it. They have listened to their parents And yet they have not developed a faith that is their faith. And then when opposition or difficulty comes, when a temptation comes, when a person who comes into their life tries to lead them away from that, suddenly they discover they didn't really have that much faith at all. And it seems to me that sometimes we are aiming at the wrong target. God rewards those who diligently seek him. And so as parents, our goal and our challenge is to try to instill a seeker's heart in our children. There is so much that goes on in our society that takes us toward what I would call a transactional view of Christianity. You know, 
what I really want from Jesus is forgiveness and to feel better. So what, what do I have to do to get that? And once I get that, I'm good. We had our deal. We made our bargain. So yeah, I'll come to church when I feel like it, but I, I'm pretty good now. And so we put a very low bar on what it means to serve the Lord. But God rewards those who diligently seek him. And so I want to challenge you this morning. That is a statement. That is a verse. That is an assurance. Yes, God will do this. But it's also a challenge. Because then we have to ask, am I a diligent seeker? Am I leading my family to be diligent seekers? Am I willing to stand out in a world that is not diligently seeking God? Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word that wakes us up and calls us to attention. Sometimes, Father, we drift in our thinking and our allegiances. We're thankful for this section, Father, that we've been thinking about this morning and the great examples that you have preserved for us so that we can know what it is to follow you and to seek you. Help us, Father, to develop that hunger to do your will and to seek you. Father, I pray that you'll help us to have the courage to stand out in a world that is not interested in you, to be different. I pray that you'll give us the endurance to continue when things are difficult, when we have questions and we don't always have answers, uh, when we have hopes and we have beliefs, but we're not sure that we're going to see those things through because sometimes those things don't come true in the way we expect. Father, I pray that you'll help us through this difficulty and be with us as brothers and sisters to help one another, to be encouragements to each other as we wrestle with the questions of our lives and we try to live for you. Bless us, Father, to be a group of people who seek after you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be someone here this morning who is ready because of what you've heard this morning or what you've been thinking about this week. You're ready to take a step to come to Jesus, have your sins forgiven, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world and he will take your sins away. What he calls on you to do, he says that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus wants you to be baptized. He wants you to be his disciple and he wants you to learn and follow his teachings. And so you will have a new course of life and become a new person. We'd love nothing more than to help you begin that this morning by turning away from your sins, being baptized into Christ. Are you ready to do that? Is there a need that you have? Please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.